Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Kaufman. Thanks for listening. I'm here with my close friend, Nicholas Morgenstern, who, uh, if you haven't heard of Nicholas, you're, you're, you're going to uh, really love this conversation. I'll tell you about him, but, but right now I think he's about to do a Tim Tam Slam because Nicholas is the best ice cream maker in maybe the world, certainly in America. His store, Morgenstern's Finest, is... Uh, you just can't even get in to get the ice cream. You got to wait online, but it's worth it. And they move the line through quickly. So you should go. And he's about to open up essentially the Willy Wonka factory of ice cream soon, um, right on the border of the East and West villages uh, off Houston Street. But he's looking at these Tim Tam, co- Tim Tam cookies from Australia. And I've just described it. And he saw them. And, and I saw that thing happen where he thought about flavor, didn't you? <laughs> I saw the Tim Tam and I was inspired. I love any kind of a packaged sweet, especially from outside the United States. It's always interesting to see what other cultures are doing with um, sugar and chocolate and biscuits. And I'm going to read Arnold's Tim Tam description off the back of the package because this is amazing. And I love having descriptions, menu descriptions for our flavors yeah, and things like that. Yeah, you're obsessed with that. So after creating an irresistible chocolate biscuit, Arnott's needed to find a suitable name. Australian baker Ross Arnott found inspiration at a U.S. racetrack in 1958 as the winning horse Tim Tam galloped across the finish awesome. line. Since then, Tim Tam has become one of Australia's most beloved biscuits. Is that true? Doesn't matter. Sounds amazing. And It's a course, great legend. So here, Nicholas, what you do is you bite, and I'm on a, a full keto thing. But like, a I, little, like a little quarter here, of Listen, the, here's the deal. I'm on keto. I'm not eating any sugar, but I'm doing this with you. Because, look, so we, you, you bite the end off the Tim Tam, and then you bite the other end off. Right? Mm-hmm. And then you use it as a straw in your coffee. <laughs> that is the thing. So stick the, that and now suck the coffee to our through listeners the at home. This is going to make no sense what we're doing. Yeah, but it's amazing. It works. And only... Then you drop it in, you know, obviously. I have to imagine that this came from a tea drinking culture, that they love soaking a biscuit in tea. Yeah. And so this wasn't intended for coffee initially. That might very well be the case. I just took one bite, and that's it for me. Yeah, but it gets all, like, gooey gooey and delicious, right? Now, the great thing is this was not an advertisement for Tim Tams at all. Like, I could, I should call Tim Tam now and get them to sponsor. We're helping them. The The podcast. But I think a Tim Tam flavor for you would be good for, like, the next couple years. Well, I think a Tim Tam um, accompaniment to an ice cream as something that you put on the side could be pretty cool. So, yeah. Well, this is how the ideation happens. It is. So, hey, everybody, let me tell you that, uh, as I said, Nicholas Morgenstern is here and his life story and his approach to uh, his conscious approach of trying to become the best uh, ice cream maker and salesman in the world has fascinated me for quite some time. And uh, over the course of doing this show, I've had friends on. I'll say Nicholas and I are good friends. We uh, We spend a good amount of time together and I've had a lot of breakfasts and I've I've heard you, you know, what's been incredible for me, Nicholas, is when we met, this idea of um, doing this store that you're about to open, you'd been dreaming about it for so long, and and, and I, I got to watch you through this entire process mm-hmm. closely, and it's been fascinating for we me. We met before, I think before we had even really figured that we were really going to do this. Yeah, you were thinking about doing it, and you knew you wanted to do yes, it. Yes, definitely. But let, and, we'll, and we'll get to it. I'll say I've, I've toured the store, and uh, I've never seen anything like an ice cream shop like it. And uh, I can't wait for people to get to see it. But your path here uh, hasn't been traditional or easy, I don't think, in certain ways. And I do want to start because a lot of people on this on the podcast, are, are although your brand is known, are more well-known than you. Sure. So. You haven't done that many of these long form interviews. So, you know, what I was thinking about is you're, 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 you had a strange and difficult, challenging childhood. And a lot of people would use that as like the reason they're not successful. Like mm. a lot of people would look to that and be like, well, what do you expect? Right. Can you talk a bit about, about it, but also about how you were able to turn that into self-reliance? Because a thing about you that your friends notice that Amy notices and, um, is, you know, you have the ability to, like, you could fix a car, you can uh, cook a meal. That You you became self-sufficient in a way. Right. You know, when a lot of people would have just decided, fuck it, I'm cashing it in. So can you just talk about where you were born and then the what happened during the course of your childhood? 
So first of all, I think the um, I think about it occasionally, but of course we all just live in our own reality. So I'm just in I'm just doing what I'm doing every day. I don't know, but yes. once in a while I think about it, and I think about Grandpa Morgan Stern, and Grandpa Morgan Stern's dad died when he was 13. It was the middle of the depression. And he became the man of the house and he had to manage a farm and he went to the military. He then worked at a big dairy and he made ice cream. That's some, that's the job that he did while he was in college. He w- went to school to become an engineer on the GI Bill. Um, he ran the farm until he was until he died and was an engineer and built all the roads in the county where he lived um, in Marietta, Ohio. And so I think that the thing that kept me going always to this day, regardless of circumstance, is kind of in the gene. And it's the, the, the Morgan Stern gene goes, just like keeps going. So then, you, you know, for my life, figuring out how to harness that into a direction. That's, so, you know, there's the drive is just there every day. I was at the shop until very late last night. Um, and we were doing an installation of a big p- a finished material. It was like a pretty stressful thing. And early in the day, we brought the big ice cream machine down into the basement, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but you buy this piece of equipment that has the weight of a small Japanese car, it weighs 1,000 pounds, and it's sitting there, and you're like, so that has to go downstairs, and we don't have an elevator. And then you have to figure that out. So I did that job with these guys that do that equipment, and that was kind of like stressful and also exhilarating. And then late at night, I was like still doing the counters. And then I got home and I kept working. And I'm like, so I just like am continuing to do this stuff. And I'm I'm getting older and my stamina flags here and there. Um, but I think when I was younger, and you're talking about what was going on in my childhood, you know, my folks had a rough time when I was young. And I could have not gone to high school every day. Like if I didn't want to go to school, there was no, nothing was going to happen to me if I didn't go to school and um, I think that because my home life was so um, unsteady that I had to create my own stability. And so going to school, I knew that I needed to go to school. And I did well in high school. I went to a public high school in Northern California, um, but I did well. And then I applied to all of the UCs and I got into a lot of UCs and didn't have any money to go to a school and also didn't know what I would do with that education that had cost me all this money. So I went to culinary school. I put myself through culinary school working as an auto mechanic. Um, The hardest part about that was keeping my hands clean because your hands get really dirty when you're working on cars. (laughs) And and then you have to like work with food. That wasn't great. And then I stopped working on cars. And um and then I, you know, worked in kitchens and when you say your childhood was hard, I just want to it's like, you know, your your mom like because people everyone has a hard childhood. But I just want to say Right. Your mom joined a cult, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, your dad had substance issues. Right. So um, my folks split when I was five. They had moved. I was born in Iowa. They had moved to California to San Francisco when I was four. And then my folks were like sort of already splitting when we got there. And it was like San Francisco in the early 80s. It was kind of a weird time. Like I remember a lot of fog, literal and figurative. Yeah, of course. It was very Humble foggy. Fog Damn, it was. It was very foggy. the actual fog. And then... Um, and so it was just a strange time. And like my folks were Humble young. Humble fog is cheese, but then there's also like the Humboldt uh, pot fog. Fog stream, yes. Yes. So so they were just dealing with their realities differently. And I think they got married when they were really young and they just didn't know what they were doing. And my mother dealt with the, um, she was really dissatisfied with her life. And she she was frustrated. And I think that she perceived herself to be a victim of circumstance which from my perspective is not the case knowing her family and like that they came from a pretty good middle-class kind of upbringing and her dad worked for the CIA and they were very much like a nuclear family living in Maryland and like having seven kids and mom was just like having babies all the time. Her, You know what I mean? That was like, that was the upbringing that she came from. My dad came from kind of like a much more working class um uh, family he had two uh, two younger brothers, and my dad was just like a hippie. He was like a little too young to really be a hippie. He wanted to be a hippie, and so they moved to San Francisco. Duh! And then they get there, and they can't really quite figure it out. My dad's like working as a house painter, and my mom's not really happy. So they split, and my folks are divorced, and they have like a really tough time for five or six years, just like being separated parents. And my brother and I kind of shuttling between homes and my dad living in a way that's like not conducive to kids 
living in like flop house style in East Oakland, you right. know what I mean? And I just was like a kid. I was like, I don't know. Like there's a lot of pit bulls running around and like, this is just what it is. Jesus. Like we had Legos. I don't know. Like that's just what it was, you know? And then, um, and my mom was like more rigid and was like flipping out. And so she just kind of got to the end of her rope at some point right before I started high school and she joined a cult and, and, People always ask me like, "What cult?" Or you know, I don't really know the details of that, and it's not that I don't yeah, care. I don't, the detail. I'm more uh, <laughs> less interested in what she did and more about how it affected you because you're so. T- the thing is, you are uh, not only driven, but you're focused, and you do a lot of things to curb your irrational impulses. Meaning, you put you put a lot of discipline in place for yourself, mm-hmm. workout routines hours and you do a lot of stuff to like but all that stuff that i do truly and people ask me like about the exercising and things like that and like i always have felt the same way about it even to this day i do the exercise that i do because of the way it makes me feel immediately when i'm done doing it and that carries me through my day and um gets me closer to the goals that i've set for myself because basically i think reaching goals is just like one foot in front of the other every day yes and um the the challenges of dealing with food service in new york city <laughs> sure mean that you just got to put one foot in front of the other and you kind of have to chip away at it you know but but how did you like you even the thing you said that your your mom sort of blamed her circumstance right how, what do you think it is uh, i get that you know you think there's something just hardwired in you. But like, do you remember how you would talk? And the reason I ask this is that a lot of us have had bad things happen. And then sometimes, even if we don't mean to, we tell ourselves a story that it means we're doomed to repeat the pattern or we're doomed to not thrive because mm-hmm. of the bad stuff. It's so like, do you remember what your self-talk was in a way or how you didn't succumb to to it? Um as that shit was happening or or was it unconscious so i was like so like i didn't smoke weed until i was 17 and like all my buddies were like getting high like every day like at lunch smoking bong hits at the house like they were like getting high and like i right. didn't get high because my dad was high all the time and i was like nothing good comes out of that because right. i'm looking I don't at that look at a flop house. Well, i'm just like looking at that and i'm like that's not gonna get you where you want to go. And like, I wanted to drive a BMW 5 Series when I was 16, you know? I was like, I should be, like, I know how to fix that. Let me get a Beamer, what's going on? And I'm like, if I'm if I'm smoking weed all the time, unless I'm selling weed, I'm probably not going to get to a Beamer. So I will just like figure it out. Like cooking wasn't really going to get me to a Beamer, really. But I was like, I'm just, I got to stay focused. I got to finish school. You know, you just got to like get up and do the things. But that, I'm telling you, it's genetic because when I got out of high school, I went to culinary school, was working. It was hard. Like I was like 18, 19, just like. A bunch of people were older than you, I imagine, at the school. Or, yeah, right. yeah, there were a couple of guys that were guys and girls that were like my age. And my class was probably like 18, 19 people. And a lot of them were career changers and stuff like that. But it was hard also just because like, I've like got to like, Work and then go to school and do those two well, things. You at the were same working time. as a mechanic. Yeah, that's then. what I mean. I had Is this, this job. You, love, you said Beamer, but I always know you as like loving American I love and Japanese cars. No, yeah, I love a Datsun. But I just remember when I was young, like my buddy's mom had like a like a eighty eight five thirty five is. Yeah. Like we would take that thing out and we were just like you know, forget a Datsun, this thing moves. Like this is, she had, it was a manual transmission sedan. And that car now is like lauded as what, like- the 88? Those, just the, that era of the five series, if you can get it set up. That was the first M5 was that one. And we don't need to get too far but into cars this. cars and but, food <clears throat> were the things even then that you- Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we. I'm from California. So like the car culture is different there than East Coast. We don't have the same car culture as we had in, uh, as you have in California. But the, the smaller Japanese cars is what I could afford to own and to work on. And the insurance was super cheap. And like, so my first car was a Datsun 510 wagon, a white one that I paid 400 bucks for. And then just like that thing just, just drove so well and ran it into the ground and just like kept running and kept, it was just crazy. And then I bought a nut, I had an orange wagon. I had a 240Z and then- um, And you would all get them 
in bad shape and fix them up? Depends. I mean, they were so cheap, even if you got a good one. I remember back in the day when I was young, like a really nice 510 would be like $3,000. Like that was, we were just like, okay, if they're asking, you'd be in the newspaper. How old old a car would it be? Well, at that point, it would have been in the 90s. So they were 20 years old. And did you always have, did you cultivate, so so another thing about you that uh, I know and all the people I know you know is you have this incredibly great eye for design. Mm. You were able to recognize, does, was that? That's from my mom. And you, did you just knew that? Like, um, it all, things just visually always made sense to you in a way. And to the extent understanding that a design that would, uh, could last or would be. Oh, right. Uh, right. You have a good sense of that right, stuff. what's classic design? Yeah. Mm. Did you I guess, develop um, that or you had it? I think it's also like, if you don't have the money to be spending on trend. Yes. If you can't buy the trendy thing, this is awesome. Yeah. You need to buy the thing that's gonna last a long time. I just bought a pair of loafers. Yeah, I never owned a pair of loafers before, and I'm like, I'm 40, <laughs> and I'm gonna go to dinner, and I can't wear like crazy dress shoes all the time, so I need to buy a pair of loafers. And then I'm like, looking at all the loafer game is big right now, and I'm like, I'm just gonna go buy a pair of Prada loafers, and they're gonna be expensive, but they're just gonna be like the they're just going to be what they're supposed to be forever. You'll have them for 25 yeah, years. Yeah, and they're just they're going to look good forever and I'm not going to be like thinking about what's the next. So, I think about those kinds of things and I think you and I probably talked about like how I look at the design for Morgan Stearns and a friend of mine came to the shop last night who's an architect who does like some pretty um, contemporary style design stuff and and um, has designed a lot of like really wild residential and also some restaurant things. And um, she came with a developer who is uh, very wealthy and is very successful. And and I've known this guy for a long time, and he's got a specific palette and taste. And he was looking at it. The store is getting very close now. Like, finishes are going up. There's still, like, plastic around, but you can see it. And he's, like, looking at it. And they came over late at night, and I was installing the security cameras. And they're just like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm just doing... I'm you were doing. installing it yourself. Yes, yes. I was on a ladder and I was like, there, right. she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm just doing this. I'm st- I got to be here right now. I'm not going to like, I'm going to do something. And and I did I did build the system for the store. So I'm like, we got to do this now. And um, he's like, mm, very interesting, Nicholas. Um, did you do the design yourself? And I'm like, yeah. And he was just like, impressive. And I'm like, cool. So like this guy... Has a vi- like he he's built some wild stuff. But what did you do to build your palette? Like your visual palette was mm-hmm. it study? Did you consciously study, or did you just follow what you were into <laughs> and then start to compare? Like how did try, it- I try to be efficient with the things that I want to know about? So if I want to know about something, then I'm going to look at it. But I'm not very good at having a broad vocabulary. So I know how I very much, I think I very much know the references that I know that I'm interested in. So if I'm looking and kind of searching around on something, then I'll get deep into a specific area because I'm like, well, that is making me feel a certain way. Um, uh-huh. What's the film Christopher Walken King in New York? There's some scenes. The Abel Ferrara movie. Yeah, and there's some scenes in that movie that take place in like back room of a restaurant. And where there's like some crazy stuff going on. And I remember watching that movie. I bought the movie after I saw it because I was like, I need to stop in that scene. It's a New York space and there's like trim detail. And some of that trim detail is in the catalog when I'm like looking at stuff. So when I'm dealing with a contractor and we're like looking at how we're going to finish out a space, you've got to deal with every corner, every surface, you got to look at it. So I have this reference where I'm like, no, that's the way that's supposed to look because it makes you feel a certain way. And film really can do that when you see restaurant scenes in a movie, like when you look at, you know, Goodfellas and they go back through the kitchens and all the stuff and then they bring the guys carrying the table and sits it down and they, and you, there's all this texture around that's making it have a certain feeling. So designing spaces specifically needs to give you like an overall perspective feeling that's yes. important. So it's not about the individual surfaces. Of course, they're important. It's like the collective thing. What's and, the emotional, it's like the emotional response you're generating, <laughs> which is, yeah, this is something Amy and I were talking about the other night after we walked, uh, you know, we, we came and saw your shop. Yep. Um, I, I love that. I've, I've, I've watched it from rubble. Yeah, you've seen the, I've whole, seen the whole thing, yeah. which has been awesome. But we were walking away and we were taken by the romantic sweep of everything that you right. do. It feels that way when you see that store. I mean, 
the there's a couple of times in the last we've been building the store. We started building in May. So where are we at now? We're in September. So we're like getting into the five month range. We're almost done. And a couple of different times during the um, build process, I get like super emotional. Like yeah, I, like out of nowhere, I'm like, whoa! I feel like I'm gonna cry because I like see something in there when I'm like, oh man, we did it! Like we got it to happen. That feels so, the way I want. Yeah, it's so uh, it's like overwhelming. So like when we got, what did we do? When we painted the exterior. The blue, Delft blue is like the blue that is now the blue that we use. So that's like my blue. I feel that way about it. So when they're there in the end of that day, they painted the blue on. And I was like, whoa, now this is getting real. Like it has a really strong feeling. And now it's also bizarre because like that happened six weeks ago. Just in the process of doing it, it happened six weeks ago. Could have happened three months ago, but it happened six right. weeks ago. So the difference in the way that we hear people talk, because there's so much foot traffic over there and people talk, you can hear it, then they're just like, oh my God, this is going to be a Morgan Stearns. And like the, the already feeling this sort of like um, increase in anticipation and excitement and that feel that has a feeling to it. So it, it does. <clears throat> Even though your love of cars is romantic and the kind of cars that you like. And the, what Amy and I were talking about we left was uh, that it's fascinating that somebody because you could have attacked a lot of different areas of the culinary world but and and this may be my and Amy's sort of like writerly look on the whole thing but you know if you were crafting it someone who had this kind of parental abandonment and had to be on his own and didn't get to have an idyllic childhood who's created the most idyllic childhood right. kind of an, uh, uh, a world you know enterprise there's a is amazing, right? You've created a paradise for adults to feel, you know, you walk into Morgenstern's and I feel like a kid again. Yep. And like, it's an idyllic kind of a childhood environment because, mm. and even as an adult, it brings, your flavors bring me right back to it, the whole design. So it's fascinating that you, from a psychological perspective, that that's where you chose to live. It's like, it took me a long time in my career to figure out that that was the spot. And I didn't know it was the spot till I got there. And then I was like, oh, this is the thing that I'm supposed to do and the empirical evidence of like how people respond to it continues to reinforce like this is what you should be doing. Right, because you the, opened coffee shops and pizzerias and, yeah. and restaurants. Yep. So talk about that. Talk about deciding to come to New York. Um, I've had a bunch of guests on the show talk about how intimidating, how daunting New right. York is when you're an outsider. Mm-hmm. San Francisco is not the, you know, you're in San Francisco is one of the great cities of the world, but not the same. It's not the same as coming to New York without, did you have a lot of context? Like what, you know, because you're at the top of your field now. So, but, but no one knew that was going to be the case when you first came here. Like you couldn't have known that was going to happen. So how, how did right. you decide to come here? Did you have a job in place? Like what, what, what happened? Um, I had been, you know, I went to culinary school for pastry I cooked in Germany for a year. I got a job working uh, for the U.S. Army there. So I like worked with a very good chef making the dessert, all, all the bread and dessert program for like the generals at a big military base in Germany. It was a great job. I got, you know, they bring you to Europe and then you work there. And I got paid like a stipend, but I could travel and I got to see Europe and it was amazing. I'd never been out of the country and then came back to San Francisco and I worked at a big hotel and I really didn't like that. It was like slow and dumb and like the food wasn't good. It was good enough. And like what I was just like, this is lame. And I was young and I was, I just wanted to do something. You like 20? Yeah, I was like 20 and I wanted to like go. Yeah, I was 20. And then, um, so I went to a job fair, I believe, at my school, and I met this recruiter for Michael Mina, and um, she was like, you got to come to Aqua, and Aqua was like four-star, and it was like this crazy, and I remember I was like, oh, I had heard about this place, it's like really crazy, and it was a restaurant, it's not a hotel, and not a not a bakery, and so I went there, and I was just like intoxicated by the adrenaline, and the energy, and like how... You went folk- there to stage there, or yeah, just to look yeah, at you, it at no, first? You had, to, you had to trail, you had to stage, just to see, I wanted to get a job there. Staging is working for free in a restaurant for yeah. a great chef for a period of time for people who don't know. And, it's like, and it looks like staging, but all the cool people, stagiaire. like these guys. You are a stagiaire when you are staging. They, they pronounce it stage. Um, that's how it's pronounced. I know. It's a French word. Yeah, no, I know. So, uh, But it still seems a little bit like, a you little know, funny. like it, we're just all putting it on. It'd be weird if we said we were staging. I staged there. Yeah, stage. All right. So you so came anyway, to so, New York to stage at Aqua. No, so, no, no, no Aqua's in San Francisco. Oh, oh so I, so sorry, I staged yeah. there 
and then I worked there and it was nuts. It was like the most, probably still to this day, the most formative experience that I had about how to do a lot with a little. Yeah, no space. They, it was just a really crazy environment and they did incredible volume at a very high level. Um, and a lot was expected of you. And if you couldn't do it, it was like, you're out of here. Were you working in the dessert? Yeah, area. I worked pastry Two there. I, was, I worked as a pastry cook and then I became the pastry chef. And um, it was a very high pressure job. You had a ton of responsibility. Um, the workload was physically incredibly demanding. The people that you worked with were like, all of them were beasts at what they did. And so, and it was small. When I went on later to work in like more European style kitchens, it was much larger. And so the job descriptions were sort of much more focused. Whereas at Aqua, you had to be able to do a lot of stuff to hold down your station and hold down anything. So I did that. And then um, I moved to Hawaii to open a restaurant for Michael Mina with a couple of the cooks um, that had been in the group. And we were going to go do a deal there. And the Japanese economy fell apart. And the hotel was owned by the Japanese. And the thing fell apart. And I stayed in Hawaii for like a year. And it was cool because I got to chill a little bit because I had been working really crazy for a couple years. And then, um, but Hawaii got really boring for me. It wasn't stimulating and the cooking was not stimulating what at all. What kind of place were you cooking at once I worked, I worked at a restaurant called Mama's Fish House, um, which- Which island? On Maui. And um, that was like the best, restaurant on the island at the time or whatever had been there a long time and has a really crazy history and story and everything like that but the food that they're doing there is like what you would want it to be if you came to eat there basically as a tourist it's very expensive very high quality fish um the environment that you eat in is like what you dream a Hawaiian like restaurant on the beach would be like. Um, but for a cook, for me, it was like just not that challenging and not that stimulating. I was too young to be doing that job in that place. So anyway, so. Um, so you got restless. You felt restless. I was restless and I was swimming every day. I was in incredible shape. I swam in the ocean every day. I drove my Toyota 4x4. I had an 81 SR5, which is now like this crazy. I had this Toyota truck and I would like, and I lived in the jungle. I didn't have, I had the solar panel, no hot water. I had this like kind of weird, idyllic Hawaiian experience. And I was like bored out of my mind. And um, anyways, I, I just Were was, you goals at that time? Had the thought of having some kind of an empire occurred to you at all? The goal or at that what point. What was the goal? The goal in at your that life? point would have been to be a pastry chef on a level of like uh, Francois Payard. Um, I what happened was I was there. I read Kitchen Confidential. Yeah, and then I was like, oh. So New York is where these people oh, are. That's Bourdain's first book. Yeah, and I was or, like, sorry, not his first book, his memoir, his first memoir. Yeah, I think that was his. The bone in the throat. Oh, I that's think right. Came he had written first. that before that, right? Um, so I read that, and I was like, oh, so New York is where these people are, like where I'm looking for. That's what I'm looking for, and that's where it is. And so um, I got on the phone and called whoever I knew in New York, and then was like looking for a chef to go work for, and the chef who had been the pastry chef at Aqua in San Francisco, who was kind of like legendary in that cult there. He was opening a restaurant here in New York. And um, I flew to New York, stayed with a friend, staged with him for like a week. He offered me a job. So you worked free for a week. Yeah, they were like opening the restaurant. So I was just like in the kitchen with them and doing yeah. whatever it was. And then he offered me a job and I like packed my stuff and came to New York and that was that. And like, I, you know, just like stayed on my friend's couch and cooked and and then that was it. What so, kind of hours is that? In, uh, you know, that cooking, um, uh, I always wonder if people yeah. understand. You work a lot of hours and you don't get paid a lot of money, but if you figure it out, if like when at that time being a cook in New York, yeah. you know, you figure it out. If you live with roommates or whatever and you're like, all right, I got to take home 450 bucks a week. Yeah. So you would go to your chef and be like, I just need 450 bucks a week. I don't care. Nothing else. There's no other like. I'll work 20 hours a day. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Whatever it is. You're just like, well, this is what I'm doing. Whatever waking hours I have, this is what I'm doing. I'm not, there's no money going into my Roth IRA. (laughs) There's no, (laughs) I don't eat. I eat, you know, uh, instant noodles or whatever. Like the family meal. Yeah. Yeah. And you just sort of figure it out. And if you work six days a week, then you're like, great, that's six days that I'm not spending money, you know, and I'm working all the time and I'm in the restaurant and I'm like 100% dedicated and focused. And you're not feeling sorry for yourself doing that. You're into it. I think that you get to a you point. You personally. Yeah, yeah. I think everyone that does it somehow has to reconcile 
the reality of like what type of sacrifice you're making, you're sacrificing other parts of your life. Most importantly, you're sacrificing relationships. Right. So, so see, when you're talking about like my background and where I come from, that was the part that was easy to do, which is to sort of cut out a little circle and be like, I live in this circle by myself and I do what I'm going to do. And it's very selfish and self-serving in reality because all you're doing is indulging your own interest without any consideration for anyone else that might be around So that was your 20s, you. basically. My, all of my 20s, yeah, I did that. that. Was, yeah, I'm saying in your 20s, you were like... I'm just basically living for Nicholas, mm -hmm. figuring out what, what Nick wants to do yep. and collateral damage is collateral damage. You weren't yeah. trying to hurt people, but you were just living, you were self-sufficient and that was fine with you. Fairly one track, you know, right. you're so you- But you're not, and so, and so I'm interested in how that changed because I've watched you make real efforts to change that. Even in the couple of years you and I have been close, I've seen, yeah, heard you talk about, I, I've seen you sort of develop into the kind of person who wants to be a good friend to people. So when I was 28, I think I started to figure out that the Saturn return was coming. I did. I was like, oh, and and then I think maybe when you like start to become aware of how a Saturn return is a concept that you could believe in or not believe in, but your life as you know it is maybe going to get upended somehow. And then all of a sudden- You're talking about the every seven years thing? Yeah. yeah. And then maybe it's like, you start to become aware of it, but 28 is supposed to be a big one. And then you're like, oh, look, my life's getting upended. And you can start to see it if you want to see that your life is getting upended. Just like if now you're going to be looking for the 88 BMW 535, because I just said it to you and you're going to start seeing it everywhere. You could just start seeing things. So I just like, oh, my life is starting to get upended. And then I think at that point, um, I watched a movie called What the Bleep Do We Know, which is about quantum mechanics and how um, the neurons in our mind are being trained in our neural network to um, reinforce patterns of behavior based on emotional response that we get from experiences at, in the outside world, primarily our relationships. So um, I, I think I watched that and, and then it's whatever point, I was, yeah, I was 28. So sometime between like 28 and 30, I was like, you know, I had been working, I took a job working for Paul Liebrandt at a restaurant called Guilt, and that thing totally went haywire. I had been at Gramercy before that. I left Gramercy to go there. That totally went haywire. And then um, I was like, oh, like, this is not, I'm just not going to be a pastry chef in a restaurant. You know, I had been at Gramercy. Had you already done Balloud? Yeah, long before that. Yeah. Right. And so I was like, this is, I'm just not going to do this anymore. There's nowhere to go with this work. It's just going to be like continually eroding and so I'm, I'm just, just gonna work 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 it's not gonna feel like I have any sense of ownership over it and I don't have any life more practically just like there's not gonna be that many more jobs for a pastry person and it's really gonna get whittled into the corner uh -huh. of the PL on uh -huh. a restaurant so you're gonna make less and less money you're gonna have more and more responsibility and you're not really gonna be able to have agency over your reality sure. so so that was like combined with being in a place in my life where I was like more open to allow things to just be upended and then thinking more about like consciously, what do I want to be feeling, you know, with my reality? What do I want to be doing with my reality? And then like doubling down. So then enters into my life a very abs like totally out of left field and opportunity where a friend of mine says, you know, I know this guy and he owns this restaurant. He owns his building in this restaurant in Fort Greene. And, you know, he got shut down by the health department and you should just meet this guy. So I meet him and I'm like, this guy, what's up with this guy? And he's a super nice guy. And he's also kind of wacky. And I'm like, and he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, I want to build this restaurant over here. And I'm like, oh, I got an idea to do like an all day kind of cafe type of place. And he was like, cool, like maybe that could work. And so we kind of like noodled around for like a year and I helped him build it, but we didn't have a contract. And a buddy of mine who was a lawyer was like helping me. You know, you don't know what the hell you're doing. You've been cooking all the time. But this lawyer did write me a really solid contract. He was like very concerned about how badly things go in the restaurant world. And so I opened this restaurant, the General Green, and like, you know, just like having to work so far out of my comfort zone, having to be in the front of the house to deal with customers, having to manage closing out a shift and count the money every night and like just doing all these other How the things. How did you learn all that stuff? There's no choice. The decision had been made to change course. 
Saturn you had made the decision, yeah. I'm changing course. Well, I, I wouldn't Because have every even, seven years, Saturn comes back around. No, I just was like, I got to change course because I can't be on the course that I've been on. Yeah. And so I need to have more agency over my reality. Yeah. So now, and then that opportunity came into my life because it just, and, and the guy said, I'll do this deal with you and um, you don't have to put any money up but we're only going to spend $90,000 on building this restaurant in this building that I own. And so then I had to like figure out how to be really resourceful to get the best product that I could get out of the opportunity with no money. And then he was like, your equity will vest over this amount of time. And so then I owned 30% of the business after a period of time. But then I just worked like I always work, like 24 said, just in the restaurant all the time, solving the problems, trying to understand how to create the guest experience that like I want them to have in this place. You know, and and it was successful. Like people liked the place. We opened it right when the market crashed in 08. And we happened to open like a diner that has decent ingredients. And so people just were like wanting to Were not, you the head chef? Um, I worked with my buddy Ryan Skeen who had been at Resto and he like helped write the menu. But it was, yeah, I mean, I, my responsibility was everything. Right. But our menu wasn't like chef driven, you know, and we eventually had full service from like 7 a.m. to midnight. And that's what that neighborhood needed. Right. And so, you know, we bought the first Lama Zocco espresso machine for a restaurant in New York. And like, I was like, I want really good coffee. It was right around when Ninth Street Espresso was like, you could go and you could get crazy coffee in New York. Prior to that, everyone got their coffee at the bodega. And then all of a sudden you have the type of coffee that we enjoy every day today. But so we were just doing those things and that happened and the, that deal went well. And, and, um, you know, I just had, I learned a lot. And a lot of people looked down on coming from where I had come from in sort of more like fine dining environments to like, we're cooking eggs and toast. You they know? thought you were slumming in a way. Or they just were like, we don't, I've been, a lot of people have second guessed, you know, coming up in my business, working yeah. next to people. They're just like, what are you, they're just like, you're stupid. Or like, what are you doing? Okay. I 100%. had this written down to ask you, which is like, well, what is your, because you have taken these crazy risks over and over again right. even the risks of like just deciding on what your 88 flavors are going to be yep but like what is your gut check process you know i read the thing shelby found in his research did you do that research or did someone else you know that like which i didn't know even though we've talked about your flavors so often because you're yours what i one of the things i love about you is like as obsessed as i am about what i do you're as equally obsessed oh, yeah. with what you do it's why you and i meet at that place but like the coconut ash ice cream, which is like one of your most five most popular flavors. Mm -hmm. Shelby unearthed this detail from some interview you gave a while ago that that flavor didn't people people didn't like it at first. Everyone was like, "What are you doing? What do you mean? Like, what what did that look like?" I don't know. I got on this thing like a long. I got on this thing to make black ice cream. In uh, what year was that? Two thousand twelve. And I has I was sort of it came because I was making black licorice ice cream. I love licorice and I love licorice ice but cream. That would be my worst. I, I would hate right. that. Well, I hate that, black but licorice. see, that's the thing is the polarizing ingredient is that's the best in ice cream. It is because you bring oh. in. Oh, you mean the, the 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 flavor that some people are like? Yeah. That's my favorite, and other people are like, I fucking hate that. Yep. That's your sweet spot. That's well, I've learned that over time through the durian test because we had durian on the menu at Morgan Stern's. We've always served durian ice cream, and um, I love durian, but people hate durian, and then we ran out of durian one time, and it was like people were flipping out, and I was like, oh, because so many people would come in and like bring a group, it'd be like dad and the kids, and dad would be like, we're gonna get the durian, and the kids would be like, ew, gross, and then he gets the durian and everyone else gets mint chip or whatever, and I was like, oh, so he just brought eight people here because we have durian. Right. So we need to have durian. Yes. Because the same person who writes all the menu and everything, this is the same person who signs the sales tax check. So you know, right, that's you. So I better so you make sure. Well, I'm just saying, I'm not, I'm driven by what does my customer want to have here. And so people ask like, why is Morgan Stern's doing, you know, what they're doing with the way our matrix is and what we do with our business is like, I got to do business. Yesterday I was like in the store and I was like, uh, Morgan Stern, you got to do some fucking business here. <laughs> like, this is a big oh, ass. Oh, in the new store. Yeah, I'm like, you oh, better yeah. figure, you got to do, like, we're at a level now with investment that we've put into this store. I, everything I got is on the table again. Talking about risk. Everything I got is on the table again. And uh, 
you can relate in the gambling world. I'm not a gambler. I don't feel like that at all. But I do, people say, well, you gamble all the time. I'm gambling on myself. Yeah, I'm thinking, knowing that you know what this shit is. First of all, you know a few things, right? You do know that you make the most delicious ice cream. And you know, and believe me, if, if I started asking you questions about that process, I mean, I've done this and we'd be sitting here for seven hours as you talk to me about overrun and sure. uh, the amount of air and- Sugar, yeah, very the, important, the low of sugar. Low sugar and Critical. the air and why your yeah. ice cream, the flavor, why, the, why it's so fruitful, you know, all that stuff. Yep. You're obsessed about it, but you have a palate too. When did you realize you had a great palate? Was that just happen? I, you know, I eat with people a lot and I think that my palate actually is not as sensitive as other people's palate, but I think that helps me in what I do because- Because you're more average person? Yeah, I think that, I think I'm probably more in the 88. There's like 80% of the population is a, is a regular palate. And then I think you have like 10% is a super taster and then 10% is like super dull. This is a fact. I'm, my numbers are right. probably off. Something but, like that. But we know that there are super tasters in the world, and most chefs are in that realm. I'm not. So I can taste things. I've eaten a lot of stuff. So I got a reference palette. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Yeah, I have yeah. that reference palette. But probably because when I eat something and I'm like, you know, is it balanced? And like, can you eat the whole four ounces and be like, I want a little more? That's what we're trying to That's what you should be trying to do. Like, can you eat that? Because if you put a bunch of weird stuff in the ice cream and it's like too extreme, maybe for a taste it might be good. But if you, we need to create things that are craveable that people want to come back for again. And I think that the palate now is like less interested in the high fat content and high sugar content in ice cream and is more interested in like the flavor being true. But we can't go too extreme. Um, with the combinations we, we want people to you know like our edible schoolyard mint chip flavor is like one of the top most popular flavors because it really tastes like mint and that's so the mission when I sit down to make that flavor I'm like we got to figure out how to make this really taste like fresh mint that's the whole thing so the back to we were making licorice ice cream we tasted all this licorice from all over the world Licorice is one of these things that's like fanatical. You start to see in Northern Europe, they go nuts for the salted licorice, which I don't like at all. I was like, this is gross. And I love salt and sweet. I love Australian licorice. Red, okay, right. Austra soft Australian red licorice so, is, I live for so that. So that's funny that you say that because the licorice that we use, that we landed on is the soft black. Or the soft Australian soft black, black. licorice. It's that's so the, good. Right, and the red for me is like yeah. everything. Yeah. I think I'm always looking for, when we start looking for these ingredients, I'm like, what is the platonic ideal of what this should be? I, that's my opinion. I, you know, we use, uh, we use peanuts from Texas, Picosos, that have been roasted by hand by this family since the 50s. And there's like two people and they, they're Spanish redskin nuts. And in Texas, it's like a cold Is that going to be for the Koppelman peanut butter and jelly yes, flavor? Probably, yes. Well, we they don't make peanut butter. So we were talking about this yesterday, actually, about like if we make peanut butter ice cream, you know, really the best peanut butter ice cream is made with like Skippy. Truly. Sure, that makes total sense. Because that's what you want it to taste like. That's the platonic like. ideal, the American platonic ideal so, of peanut what, butter. But see, what I like to think, because... I'm still sort of slumming it with a Datsun and I'm still like more, I'm happier in that zone is that I'm not above being like Skippy is really what is going to make this best. I'm not, Skippy's not paying me. I'm not plugging Skippy necessarily, but that should. I'd be, be interested in the Skippy versus Jif taste test. Sure. In ice cream Let's actually. Do it. Let's, Let's do, it. do that. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do that. And there's others. There's others. Peter Pan is in there and like, yes. and they're all slightly thinner, different. Though. It's a slightly thinner flavor, right, see? different so, aftertaste. But you don't know it might read better in an ice cream and that's. Yeah, I don't know. So, you know. But I what don't. I'm saying is like when we went down the black licorice hole, then I, we would get these packages. We have to order the licorice from Australia and it comes in a big package and um, you would open up the, it comes in this kind of like big plastic thing and, and then you would look at it and you would be like, man, it looks like oil. Like it's so black. Yeah. And I was like, man, if we could make the ice cream look like that, that would be sick. That'd be amazing, right? Right. And so that's how I got nuts on trying to make black ice cream. So then we were trying all the ingredients for black for years and it just like doesn't happen for, I'm not going to get into that. But then, I don't know, I got on the coconut ash thing. And, and what is coconut ash? Um, coconut ash is the hulls of a coconut after you've taken out the the water or the milk and the flesh, and you're left with the with the shell. You burn the shell, 
And then there's a process by which they activate it using water and steam to open up the pores. And then, you know, activated charcoal is used for all different kinds of health benefits and things like that. But um, as an ingredient, it imparted this color. And so we did a lot of work to, number one, make sure that we were getting an FDA-approved quality product. And number two, that we were getting something that we could get consistently for our uses and, um yeah, recently the FDA made it illegal to use this as a food additive, uh, flavor additive, and um, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to get So you've it. had to take it off the Yeah, menu. we're not allowed to serve it. And there's others still serving it, but we'll, we, we, you know, it was very frustrating for me when it happened because people love it and we were the first ones to do it. Yeah, you were, but but people told you it would be bad and they didn't like it. And you were mm. like, nah, this is going to I want to understand like, your gut check process. So, so okay, so, I mean... I just think that if I, once in a while, I make something or I see something and it like gives me all the like tingles and yeah, stuff. Uh-huh. And I maybe I feel like I'm a kid and I'm just like, fuck yeah, like that right there. And if someone else is like, I don't, then I was like giving it to my friends, like chefs and stuff. And they were like, they were like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. And I was like, what? And then I would just be like, I don't know, they just don't. So then we put it on the menu, and it wasn't really popping. It was like selling, and but people just didn't know. And then one day, of an, some kind of an online something or other just was like, black ice cream is here, and like you ha- you don't know about it. And then boom, after that, we were like on the news in you know Saudi Arabia. It was or something. one of the things that like broke Morgan Stearns. Well, we were already think? going. We had been open for about a year when we put it on the menu, but then it just like went totally sideways at that point and brought us a lot of attention. And if you, you know, Google black ice cream, yeah. number one and like all the SEO stuff. like. But you just decided I dig it, so I'm doing it. Well, yeah, but I also was like, you know, the the thing about eating with your eyes is really true. And like we we don't use colorings at all. All of our ingredients are natural. But like we have, you know, our, our chocolate and blueberry ice cream has this like really electric color to it. And people love that. They, you know, they love that. So if they love that, we want to try to figure out how to get them that without compromising what we do otherwise with our ice cream. So I don't like, yeah, I don't use colorant in the ice cream. I, you could easily throw colorant in everything and make it like an electric color. That's just not consistent with what I think we should be doing with ice cream. Right, so you're creating it naturally and it also is important because i think that morgan stearns is sort of supposed to be this like ideal of what an american ice cream parlor can be you might not know what to look at me at first because i have a beard but i do shave uh because i shave the part above and below my beard but also at times i've had a goatee at times i've been clean shaven and one thing is true i always use gillette razors and blades Uh, i love the gillette fusion razor it works perfectly Uh, It doesn't hurt my skin. In fact, uh, it does a great job, and that's why I haven't changed for a long time. And here's the great news. Now you can get Gillette quality blades at the best value and convenience with Gillette On Demand. With Gillette On Demand, you can get blades delivered directly to your door. It's a simple way to subscribe and know what you're getting and be happy with what shows up at the door. Subscribe to Gillette On Demand today and get 50% off your first order with special offer code THEMOMENT50 at checkout. Enjoy free shipping and every fourth order free with subscription. Visit Gillette online at GilletteOnDemand.com. Use the moment 50 for 50% off your first order. Do it! So when, when you opened the first place, and I started with a cart, and the first yep. Morgan Stearns, that was like the moment when you really arrived in the consciousness of the food public, right? Yeah. In New York. Yeah. Well, I'd been written about for stuff before that, for sure. I had experienced- For, for like- um, The General the- Green, definitely. Goat Town, not as successful. Um, El Rey was open before Morgan Stearns and had gotten some yeah, El Rey kind was of successful. whatever it was. But those were, I, I don't know that those were as personal- no, no, definitely not. But it was like a it was a huge watershed moment for me and my conscious reality of myself that I did not realize how uh, dissatisfied and frustrated I was before Morgan Stearns. That's fascinating. Yes, yes. So I didn't realize right, you were that. successful by normal terms. I mean, I don't know whatever it's relative to. I don't know. I don't think about it that way. I just know that the way that I felt. That's the only standard that matters. Right. So the way that I felt, and I had 
I had educated myself on how to build um, places, physically build them. Yes. So, you know, when guys were like looking at me and going like, you, um, you know, you, you're opening this diner and like, why are you doing that? And I'm like, this is an incredible learning experience and I don't really have to be so attached right. to this. And that's an important thing to do. And then when we went and opened Goat Town, very similarly was like another level of learning. And I'm involved in all of the, I run all the financials for all the businesses. I, I deal with the accountants on every level, all the things that you should know about if you're going to do one of these things. Because if you don't know, then you're exposed and you don't want to lose your dream because you didn't understand how to pay sales tax. Like learn how to do that. Yeah, Tony Robbins talks about that. Well, one of the 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 ways we sabotage ourselves is to believe. Well, the experts can handle that. The experts know. I I'm, I'm not an expert. expert. I'm the expert. Right, you bro. have to become an expert. I'm the expert. And I read an article yesterday online about a huge project that was supposed to open in L.A. from someone who's very well known and has talked and talked about how they've got this little thing and now they're going to do this big thing and they're famous and they've written books and blah 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 blah. And then two and a half years later out comes the article that's like, well, we had trouble with this thing and that thing. And, you know, the the regulations were difficult and we had problems with the landlord. And so, you know, humbly I withdraw. And me, I'm like, fuck you. Fuck you for getting a bunch of media exposure for something that you don't have the balls to do. To really do. And you no, didn't want to ever be that dude. I don't, if I'm going to do something, if I say I'm going to do something, I do it. What did it feel like when you did open the first Morgan Stearns and it hit the way that it hit? So did it we, change something? Well, we in were you? building El Rey and Morgan Stearns at the same time. Physically, I was building them, and when El Rey, when I, I signed the lease for both stores the same day, El Rey's a up coffee, uh, upscale kind of coffee bar. Place. And so I, um, so I signed the lease for both on the same day, which is like totally nuts. I had the money together to do Morgan Stearns. I had gotten financing from uh, my buddy JP Morgan Chase, which was crazy that they gave me financing. But they did because I ran my books really tight at my other store. And I moved some money around and they were like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm going to try to open something else. And they were like, do you need any money? And I was like, yeah, but I'm not going to get it from you. And they were like, let us have a talk. And they came down and sat in my little basement office. And they were like, can we see the balance sheet? Can we see the PL? Can we see the cash flow? And I produced them all instantly. And now I know the banker. He's helped me several times since. And he's like, bro, when I brought the exec in from Ohio who underwrites all this stuff, they were just like, no restaurant person can produce those reports on site. And I just did because I kept my books square. And I was like, yeah, here you go. This is our stuff. There's the tax returns. Everything's ready to go. And they wrote me the note. I couldn't believe it. So then I was shopping That's for awesome. a store. So yeah. then I was like looking for a store and got the store. And I had got I had gotten people to invest for El Rey idea as well. So I did both at the same time. So I was going to build El Rey first. And then I was going to build Morgan Stearns was in an old restaurant supply store on Rivington and Bowery, where I had bought restaurant equipment, by the way, like many times years before. It was really bizarre to be like, I'm going to open an ice cream parlor. And then that block there, people were just like, you're, this is going to be weird. You're not like, what are you doing? Everyone was just like ice cream parlor. So that whole, it was a really brutal winter in New York. Uh, 13 to 14 was brutally cold. The floor in that store is diamond plate steel, which is freezing. We had replaced the storefront. And so we had no storefront. And I built that store with two Ecuadorian brothers, incredible guys, carpenters, do everything. The three you did it by hand. It was the three of us. And then I had a sub for electric, a Chinese guy who did my electric work. And I worked with a guy from um, Belize who did, who did, all, did all my plumbing for me, just like one dude. And then I would just be like, well, this is where we need to run the grease trap. And then he would be like, all right, I'm going to do that. And then he would just do it. It wasn't like, now I have like, engineers and I got to like deal sure. with all this other BS to get something done but we just like did it and so yeah it was just a few, I, had, I work with the same guy who does all my glass I work with the same Chinese guys to do my steel still and I just tell them like but then I'm there when I when you talking about be the expert I'm like no this is the way this has to be done but I can do the things like as much as it's, all you're using is your brain and your two hands and if the guy has the tool go find out where to buy the tool go buy the tool and figure out how to use the tool right That's that just, makes sense but but when it so you did it by hand. So I'm saying and at the same time you're ideating the flavors, right? Or did you have the flavors? The menu for Morgan Stearns I wrote in the office while I was listening to Kanye West and Drake. Both. Awesome. I'm serious. I was in the office and we were like built. We had built it, and I was just like, okay, so 
Um, I got to make the ice cream. The machine was in. I only had three people working with me at that point. I had a manager and a couple of staff. It was me. It was Tad. It was Jen, Kalani. That was it. And we opened. There was only four people. And we opened. So I made all the ice cream. And then I worked the register and scooped. It was crazy. We worked like it was nuts. Did we, you know, because you had the little cart, you knew that you had created a way to make ice cream that was better than other ice cream. I knew that it was really good. You knew and that. I knew that you had people, tested that. You knew yes, people liked your ice cream. People thought it was really good. And um, Do you remember when you became upset? Because we only have a few more minutes. Do you remember when you became obsessed with ice cream first? Did you always love it? It progressed over time, but as I figured out how to make ice cream without eggs and that, and like that, that would allow me to be more flexible with bringing flavor into the equation. That's when I really started to like hone in on it. And then when we were building the store, everyone was like, we, we, I was physically bringing all of the black pipe in my Subaru to the store for the plumbing. I would go buy all the stuff and bring it back. So that was going on and people were just like on the block. People would just be like this guy. And I was just like, I'm just, this is what I'm doing. Then you have to have real resolve in your idea of what you're going to do. Yes. Everyone else is like, you're, you you're don't crazy. know, or you're crazy or you're stupid. You're just like, this is just some silliness. And you're just like, I'm just doing the plumbing. Just gonna. I'm just. You know. Know, I always say that uh, artists and also I think entrepreneurs. You know, the line between being delusional and being a genius is very thin. Very thin. Very thin. Yeah. It could have not worked, Brian. Like it always could not work. But yeah. Dave and I went in the basement to write rounders. It could have could not, not work and work. Yeah. Two. Two. Two more things. But uh, wait, I want to just finish the yes, thought go. because then the store was like coming together. And then, you know, it's like got the design the way I want it. And I, you know, we all those things, it's like starting to snap together and I'm like feeling it. And then we're getting towards opening day, which is the Friday of Memorial Day, 2014. And a week before New York Magazine had very generously run a two page spread of our King Kong banana split. And they'd taken this crazy photo and done the thing where they have all the bubbles for all the ingredients and everything. And I was like, this is sick. That looks great. New York Times had written something about that we were opening. And I was like, all right, so it's moving along. The On the Friday that we were opening, we're like cleaning and vacuuming and everything. And I'm screwing all the little bar hooks under the counter myself. I'm down there. And it's like probably like four in the afternoon. And I stand up from that and I look out the window and there's like all these people on the street. And my GM at the time, Jen, is there. And I'm like, Jen, what's going, what's up with all these people? And she's like counting the money. She's like doing the till, the register. And she's like, I think they're here for us. And uh, I was just like, oh shit, like I better go get the ice cream. So in that moment, like it still gives me chills that I remember that like we created this thing and then all these people came and like the first customer was this guy, David Darst, who's an analyst on, um, He's a, like a financial analyst on TV. Look him up. He's very intense. He was my first customer and he spent $100. The And I was like, I'm fucked. Like, I don't have enough ice cream to sell $100 worth to every person. And that's how it started. And then from there, it changed my life. What did the, this, these are the final two questions. What did that validation do to you inside? Like the fact that people loved it. So much more uh, freeing to be vulnerable. That... So is th this that ties into my second question. Is that what allowed you to begin trusting people? 100%. Actually getting that validation then allowed yeah. you to go, I need to actually now let it expand go. myself as a human. Yeah, just let it go. Like let go of any kind of negative feelings or frustration or anxiety or animosity. It just allowed me That's to- That's what let you get over your childhood in a way. Yes. Because then you're like, uh, then you sort of like shipped off on your own- you d I've done my own, now I've plotted my own course. I've built my boat and my boat sails and now I can sail my boat and then feel free. And like, if you crash the boat, you built the boat. So, you know, but you're not probably going to crash if you trust your vulnerability around what's going to be, what's going to be good. Like do good. It's going to work out. Well, dude, first of all, I love you. I'm so happy to have you here and so happy to have you in my life. And, um, I'm not just saying that for all the free ice cream I get, but I do enjoy the free ice cream. I, I mean, you're getting both, best of both sides. It's, I get the whole thing. Um, everybody, listen. I mean, I wouldn't have an ice cream guy on my show here just because we're friends. Uh, I, I have to say, Nicholas's shop, is it, it is the best ice cream shop I've ever been into in my life. And the new one, which is going to be on Houston and uh, LaGuardia, 
It will be open by mid-October for sure. And uh, go in there and uh, get yourself some ice cream. I think my favorite flavor is, uh, well, until we have the peanut butter and jelly flavor, which is deep in the ideation stages. <laughs> He's going to have 88 flavors. That won't be one of them, but maybe no, it it'll might be, be bonus. It it'll be bonus, be bonus flavor, uh, PB&J. Uh, you know, you kind of have to put it out there in the world. But the coffee is the greatest thing I've ever had in my life. And also he has this green tea pistachio. And if, it may sound odd, but it's the whole thing with the color. This green ice cream is like that and the coffee or, and the cardamom lemon jam are three of the greatest flavors of ice cream I've ever had. Nicholas Morgenstern, thanks for being here. Morgensterns, everybody, where can they find you online and find information about the stores? Uh, MorgensternsNYC.com is where the stores are at. And then... Uh, You're on Instagram. I'm on Instagram as Nicholas Morgenstern as my name. And uh, Morgensterns, obviously, is on Instagram as well. And uh, you can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. And uh, if you want to email me, the moment, bk at gmail.com. Don't ask... Uh, me to get you free ice cream. I can't. Go pay for your fucking ice cream. All right, everybody. See you next time. Bye.